Welcome back to the Plant Powered People podcast. I'm Michelle Kane, your co-host and founder of World of Vegan. And I'm Tony Okamoto, your co-host and founder of Plant Based on a Budget and Food Sharing Vegan. On this show, we talk with plant-powered people from all around the world about various aspects of plant-based living because we want to empower you, dear listener, to learn, explore, and evolve as a human being in a kind, sustainable, and healthy direction, all while eating the most delicious food and having a ton of fun. Today, we are beyond excited and honored to bring on a longtime hero of mine who's actually one of the many reasons why I'm vegan today, who's played a tremendous role in creating a kinder world for animals, Milo Runkle. Milo Runkle became the founder of Mercy for Animals at the age of only 15. For decades, Milo oversaw the organization's growth into a leading international force in the prevention of cruelty to farmed animals and promotion of compassionate food choices and policies and raised over $130 million to help expand farm animal protection work across the globe. He has worked with the world's largest food companies, including Walmart, Nestle, and McDonald's, to successfully modernize their purchasing practices in ways that improve the lives of over 2 billion animals annually. He has been featured in hundreds of television, radio, and newspaper interviews and has worked alongside elected officials, corporate executives, heads of international organizations, academics, farmers, celebrities, and film producers to pass landmark legislation and implement animal welfare policy changes. He is also the co-founder of the Good Food Institute, author of Mercy for Animals, One Man's Quest to Inspire Compassion and Improve the Lives of Farm Animals and is the founding partner in Joyful Ventures, a social impact venture capital fund investing in the future of animal-free, sustainable proteins. Milo is such an incredible human being who has done so much over the past few decades, and I'm really excited for the show. I hope you all enjoy it. Before we jump in, I want to read a quote from Milo that I read today as, as we're kind of pulling some ideas for our conversation. I thought it was really special. So he said, I think that there are two primary ways we can choose to see the world. One way is to see fear and harm around every corner, to see everyone as a potential enemy or threat. The other is to see the kindness and joy in every situation, to see everyone as potential allies and friends. We truly are mirrors in the world. If you smile or wave at someone, they'll likely smile or wave back. If you flash them the middle finger, they likely will do the same. Culturally, we've become so conditioned by media and policies to see the world as dangerous and mean, but if we send out kindness, we will quickly see that we receive it. Some might call it karma. There are acts of kindness happening all around us every day if we open our eyes to see them. Such acts can be the words of love and affirmation to partners, children, companion animals, neighbors. Other acts can be offering small gestures of love throughout the day, such as smiling people you pass on the street or letting someone step in front of you at the grocery store checkout. Kindness is contagious. Having led a global animal protection organization for 18 years, I saw acts of kindness on a daily basis. I saw that at the core of the human spirit is a deep-rooted desire to help others. To me, every time someone makes a donation to an organization, helping to bring more kindness into the world, that's an act of kindness. Every time someone eats a vegan meal, that's an act of kindness. Every time someone adopts an animal from a shelter, that's an act of kindness. And for those listening 
In today's episode, we share a whole lot of ideas of how we can each plug in to be kind, to help create a kinder world for all of those living in it. And we're so thrilled to have on Milo. Before we jump in, we want to give a big thank you to our sponsors of this episode, Caraway and Organifi. Caraway makes the most beautiful crafted cookware and bakeware that's elegantly designed, eco-friendly, non-stick and non-toxic. And it's what I personally use to cook with every day. I'm all about finding ways to spark more joy in everyday tasks. And these pans really do that for me. They make cleaning pots and pans so much easier because everything just slides right off of them. And all of their pans and bakingware come with genius storage systems that make my kitchen feel way more organized. So if you'd like to check them out, we have a special code. You can save on the full suite of Caraway products, including their new food storage containers, their tea kettle and mini cookware. Just visit carawayhome.com slash plantpoweredkitchen to take advantage of this limited time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive for our listeners. So again, you can visit carawayhome.com slash plantpoweredkitchen or use the code plantpoweredkitchen at checkout to explore Caraway. Non-toxic cookware made modern. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that makes it easy to get in more plant-powered nutrition, vitamins, antioxidants, and superfoods, even when life gets busy. They have several powder blends, including a green juice packed with veggies, a red juice packed with dried fruits and superfoods, and other science-backed health blends. And the best part of it is that they all contain less than three grams of sugar per serving. And my personal favorite is the red juice because it tastes just like fruit punch. I used to love fruit punch growing up. And this one is so good. It has 13 superfoods for energy support, like beets, blueberries, acai, pomegranate, raspberries, strawberries, cranberries, and mushrooms in a berry superfood drink. It increases energy without the caffeine and is 100% USDA certified organic. It's so tasty and you can get some for yourself. Just head over to Organifi.com slash plant power. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash plant power and use the code plant power for 20% off of your entire order. Hi, Milo. Welcome to the Plant Powered People podcast. We are so excited to chat with you today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. Where are you calling us from? I am calling from my home in Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles. Very cool. Well, probably very warm. Yeah. <laughs> Year is- round, you have the most beautiful weather down there. Absolutely. It's one of the things that I, I love most about LA and Southern California. It has been incredibly hot the last few weeks, which is not a surprise, but it's starting to cool down a bit now, which is nice. Well, we are... Excited to dive in. You have been someone who has inspired so, so many people and who has done an incredible amount of good work for animals. And we want to introduce our audience, the few who probably aren't already aware of all the goodness that you've brought into the world, uh, to you and your story. And I'd like to start with the very beginning of how you were brought up And I think that that is a really interesting part of what got you here today. 
growing up in Ohio and even before that from your birth. So can you start from the very beginning of your story? Yeah, absolutely. So I was slated to be a fifth generation crop farmer. I was born in a little farmhouse on the couch, delivered by a veterinarian, which was my dad, who met my mom through a horseback riding program. So I guess you could say that I wouldn't likely be here if it wasn't for animals bringing my parents together. Growing up on a crop farm in the middle of nowhere, a village of less than 2000 people, I just always had a connection to nature, to land, to agriculture. And it was really that that upbringing in this environment that sensitized me to animals. It was our horses and our dogs and our cats on our farm that taught me from a very young age that it was someone, not something, uh, looking back at me from behind their eyes. And I just innately knew that they had personalities and minds and interests and needs that were worthy and deserving of protection. I was kind of a lonely kid growing up in such a remote area that it was our animals that provided me with a lot of companionship and would spend so much of my time exploring our pond and the creeks and the fields with them. And in the same time, saw that there was a real sort of disconnect in this community between animals that were considered companions and those that were considered food. To me, I could just never really see a difference between the the pigs and the cows and the chickens and the cats and the, the dogs. So I witnessed a lot of animals being slaughtered. My Both of my uncles were hunters and trappers and, and fishermen and would see, you know, really sort of brutal things happening to animals at a young age. And it just made my heart hurt. It made my soul hurt. I had such such deep empathy for them. And I think that is, you know, at its core, what sort of sent me on a journey of, of being a lifelong um, advocate for, for animals. I've heard of a lot of other children feeling similarly than parents and kids and the world's pressures get to them and their light is dimmed. How did you make it so that you can continue on the path of kindness toward animals long-term, even living in an area where animal cruelty was so present? It's a great question. And I absolutely agree. I mean, I had I had friends, my, my sister, my sister's friends who were in 4-H programs or Future Farmers of America programs. And it was more the rule than the exception that these young kids who raised pigs or, or, you know, calves and bottle fed them and gave them names and cared for them as if they were family members would be absolutely distraught when the time came for the fair and to sell these animals by the pound to the highest bidder. That was the norm in this community. But what I also saw was that with each passing year, as the as kids were involved in these programs, they would become a bit more hardened to that reality. And, you know, many of them had to be told and taught that's just the way that it is. 
That's just the way that it is. These are food animals. You can't get attached. I was really privileged and fortunate enough to have two really incredible parents. My my mom was a, a teacher and a, a real lover of animals and, and quite progressive in her thinking. As I said, my dad, a veterinarian early on. And they their sort of parenting mindset was, this is your life, you live it, and we'll be here to support you. And I realize now what a gift that was and that not not all kids have parents who have that sort of life philosophy. So they really encouraged or at least supported my empathy that evolved into activism for animals. Um, But that being said, it was a lonely road. (laughs) Oftentimes, you know, this was pre-social media. This was at a time when it was very hard to connect with other people who felt the way that that you did, especially in, in rural environments. I think also growing up queer in an environment like this, I also felt like an outsider for for other reasons, which really, you know, led to me having to pave a road of independence and going sort of against the grain of what was happening in in this area as well. Not again, not an easy road, but but one that I, I now look back and, and view as as a real gift and something that strengthened my my resolve to to help affect change in the long run. What a special gift to have such incredible parents that were so supportive in allowing you to be you. I wish that for every kid. <laughs> were there any moments that stood out in really solidifying in your mind, like, oh my gosh, this experience just made it so that this became your mission in life? Like, were there any really experiences that shaped who you were going to become? You know, in terms of just a deep sort of connection with animals, uh, as I said, it is so many times in our in our creeks and ponds and, you know, having our companion animals right there by my side just really deepened that that respect for animals. In terms of sort of traumatic moments. I remember my uncle scaling fish that were still alive, um, like flopping around and, you know, seeing these looks of real like fear and panic in the eyes of fish that were suffocating out of the water, gasping for air. My other uncle skinning rabbits while they were still alive and kicking. And then for me, it was really learning about industrial agriculture and seeing images of what was happening. I was 11 years old and I was at an Earth Day event at a mall. And there's just a local group of a handful of activists in this in Dayton, Ohio, who had set up a little card table with some leaflets. And I picked them up and that was the first time I heard the term factory farming. And I remember the image on the cover was a, a sow in a gestation crate. And there was pictures of calves and veal crates and hens and battery cages on the inside. And I felt sick to my stomach reading about this at the age of 11 in the car on the way home. And by the time we rolled into our our farmhouse, I told my mom that I was a vegetarian and didn't want to eat animals anymore. And, um, you know, have, have never really looked back ever since. 
I wish I had known you when I was younger because <laughs> I feel like I, I got exposed to that sort of similarly. And it's a very lonely road when you're young because there's really no one else around oftentimes who are vegetarian or vegan or have really been exposed to the information and care, which is why your work eventually with Mercy for Animals and everything has been so impactful for so many because it gave people a voice and an outlet to plug in and actually take this pain that they were seeing in animals being harmed and put it into purpose and action. You've told a few times the story of a biology teacher and mm -hmm. a moment with a pig. Would you be up for sharing that story? I know it's it's a pretty traumatic one, but yeah. I think it says a lot about our, our food system. Yeah, sure. So my local high school, Graham, which was just outside of St. Paris, where, where, I, where I grew up, there was a an agriculture class. It was actually a Future Farmers of America class. And the teacher of that class, uh, Mr. Jenkins, was also a pig farmer. And it came time in the class where there was going to be a dissection project of, I mean, typically be fetal pigs, but this was a piglet dissection. And, you know, rather than ordering piglets from a, a dissection company, he decided that he would kill probably some runt piglets on his farm and bring them to the school to be used in, in the project. So that morning, he killed about, about half a dozen piglets and brought them to school in a bucket. And when he arrived, one of the piglets was still alive. She was actually standing on top of the, the other piglets in the bucket. And another student who did part-time work on Mr. Jenkins' farm walked over and grabbed this piglet by her hind legs and slammed her head first into the ground in an attempt to, to kill this piglet. And this was done in front of the, the whole class, including exchange students and people that weren't really even involved um, in the FFA program. The piglet didn't die. Her skull was fractured. She was bleeding out of the mouth, vocalizing, just in really, really horrible distress. A few of the students in the class who were just absolutely appalled grabbed this piglet, left the classroom, went down the hallway to another teacher, uh, Molly Fearing, who was, it was her first year teaching at the school. She had just moved from Columbus and she was known in the school as the vegetarian who cared about animals. Molly left the school and went to the local veterinarian and they examined the piglet and said, you know, there's nothing that we can do really to help this piglet other than to, to euthanize her. So they did. Molly then went to the sheriff's department and showed them the piglet, told them what happened and urged them to, to file cruelty to animal charges, which surprisingly they actually did. And this became a big deal in the community. It was in the local papers. It was in some of the larger city, like television stations. And it was really quite a hot button issue. And the very first day of the trial, the charges were dismissed because the, the judge looked at the statute and saw that there is a common farming exemption, which most states have. And these common farming exemptions essentially say, you can do whatever you want to a farmed animal as long as it is considered standard practice. Now, that standard practice clause or exemption legalizes things like 
slamming baby piglets headfirst into the ground. It's considered blunt head trauma. It's called uh, in the industry thumping. It legalizes debeaking of chicks, um, castration and tail docking without pain relief, keeping hens in cages where they can't turn around, you know, the list of horrors that, that many of your listeners are probably very familiar with. So that case and in my backyard really illustrated in a very visceral way, I was already a vegetarian um, by this point, that this issue was urgent, it was local, and that there needed to be an organization in this small farming community that would give a voice to animals that are used in our food system. Because it was, it was clear to me that if this had been a puppy that was at the school and somebody had slammed the puppy and headfirst into the ground, that that individual would have been charged with animal cruelty. They probably would have been suspended. They could have been referred for psychiatric evaluation. The outcome likely would have been incredibly different. But because it was a piglet, which we know suffer no differently than, than puppies, the outcome was, was the opposite. So Molly, the teacher who took the piglet to, um, to, to the veterinarian, and I met not long after and founded Mercy for Animals just as a, as a local organization um, to advocate for farm animals. Wow, that's incredible. It's also a, a reminder of having, how having a resource at your school or wherever, someone who kind of gets it <laughs> can be very empowering. Do you think you would have started Mercy for Animals without that support? And then what happened next? I mean, a lot of people, even to just decide to go vegetarian or vegan, like that's already a big change. And someone counts that as their contribution to the world, but to take the issue upon your own shoulders and say, I'm going to create bigger change than that. It's a lot. So take us through what's next. Would I have started Mercy for Animals if, if, if I didn't have that support? I mean, ultimately, I'll never know what, what could have happened. But I, I do know, having, having co-founded a number of, of endeavors now, is that for, for me personally, and I think for, for most people, it goes a really long way even to have one person who is in your court, who is there sometimes even just cheering you on, but ideally helping do the work and helping, you know, with each step as you take something from an idea to a plan to, you know, manifesting it into, into form and navigating through all of the ups and downs and, you know, for this type of work, oftentimes there's a lot of lows and a lot of prolonged lows and a lot of challenges. And so it really is faith that you can make a difference and support from others. So, you know, I think it is, it is incredibly important, not just in this arena, but in life in general to have oftentimes even one person that you can really walk this path with. So I'm, I'm, you know, really grateful to Molly for many things, but certainly um, helping be a catalyst for, for getting Mercy for Animals born into the world is, is one of them. And again, now with, with the internet and social media, it's much easier to connect with people who feel the same way that you do. So certainly I encourage anyone who, who's listening and thinking about starting anything, whether it's a, a business or an organization or a podcast or a blog or you name it, if you can find find a support 
system, find a support base. It will go a really long way in getting you through some of those those challenging moments. In terms of what what was next, it um, I was 15 when we started the organization and had absolutely zero idea what I was doing <laughs> and zero idea of what I was really signing up for, what became a 20 plus year commitment. And that maybe that was a good thing. But, you know, it was, we started by holding meetings at the local library, which maybe one person would come to. Sometimes no one would come to the meetings. We wrote letters to the editor of the local papers. We did library displays. We started doing protests at the local McDonald's. Anything that that we could think of. But I think the organization really started to pivot a little bit probably a year or two in when we started being ourselves more as a statewide organization and started doing investigations and open rescues at egg factory farms. And at the time, Ohio was the number one egg producing um, state in the nation. I'm not sure if I shared with this with you before, but Mercy for Animals was one of the catalysts that made me vegan. It was one of the library events in Ohio that I went to when I was in college and there was a documentary being shown. And it solidified in my brain just seeing people around me who were gathered together as vegan people, <laughs> just seeing the example that it exists and it's possible. And I had just read Animal Liberation by Peter Singer, and I had it in my mind that I wanted to be. But seeing that example and finding that community made it feel possible and then empowered me to get involved and take action in a way that I hadn't before, even though similar to you, when I was quite young in high school, I started an animal rights group. And in in college, I did as well. But until connecting into the network that you started through Mercy for Animals, and until having those resources of other people who are kind of thinking more strategically and thinking bigger, I also was just like, I have no idea what to do. I can, you know, raise money with a bake sale and donate it to an organization. But the thinking bigger and getting access to things, even meeting at a library. Sometimes you need money for the food or to host something, to get the movie rights to screen. It's just, it's a lot. So having that community makes so much more possible. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you for starting all of that and for empowering me personally to be vegan. But also, I'm so curious, as someone who kind of led a similar path when I was younger, but was not very effective at all in terms of reaching a lot of people. How did you create the growth so you can host events at a library? And with those, you get involved locally. But how did you grow it to a point where then you had volunteers organizing things without you there and other parts of the city? How how did that happen? Yeah, well, thanks for showing up. It's a leap of faith to even just show up for one of these events, let alone to host it. And certainly the library events. And as you know, you know, we would hold library events in all the major cities in Ohio every month. And we would have guest speakers who would do video screenings, there would be an entire meal. And and the goal really was to, to one, educate and inspire and feed, but really to create a sense of community. And in the early days, there were many times where I felt like I was the only, <laughs> only one carrying the the banner for for Mercy for Animals. But as it grew and we had a strategy to have regional coordinators and co-coordinators, there are really so many people that want to make a difference and don't know where to start and are looking for a place to plug in and are looking for a community to support and be supported by. And I think that 
that was one of the really beautiful things to come out of of that that type of work that the organization was doing certainly at that stage and you know it's it's always a leap of faith you know giving over responsibilities to other people for something that that you're helping to birth can be challenging but that's ultimately the only way in which anything can can grow is for people to feel empowered and to feel like people have ownership and we want to inspire people on a grassroots level to take whatever their skills, passions, resources, time commitments, allow them to contribute and, and do that. And, you know, hopefully do it in a really joyful way. So that's kind of like, you know, big, big picture thinking. In terms of like how we did it, it was a lot of just <laughs> stumbling over ourselves. There wasn't a guidebook or a playbook for it. It was just kind of figuring out what worked and is this having impact? Can we be more impactful? And I think that that is something that the organization now in 20 is celebrating its 23rd year is still doing, is really taking a look at what tactics are we using because we are familiar with them and they are just something that has been in the calendar and what tactics can we use that capitalize on where we're at now? You know, the world is in a different place now than it was 23 years ago. Media is different than it was back then. How we reach people, where food choices, what food choices are available, what can happen in the innovation space, you know, what can happen on a legislative arena. These are all areas that continue to evolve. So I think it's really important for organizations to always sort of have a, a deep look at what needs to be released and what can be called in for maximum impact. Because at the end of the day, we want Mercy for Animals to make life better and spare as many lives for as many animals as, as possible. And for us, that went from hyper-local to now international. And the organization having international mandate and staff in seven countries and, and growing. And so that's just part of the journey and being committed to what the just cause is and not the way in which it's impl being implemented at any given time. What advice do you have for people who have a hard time with change? I know that sometimes you can stumble into a form of activism that you really like. We'll say leafleting or protesting. I am not one of those people. I'm super introverted. So I don't understand that. But I know that there are people who do. And then as times change and social media becomes a more effective way to reach people or media on television, on radio, how do you advise people to break out of their comfort zone and try new things and move with the times? That's a great question. And, and obviously, that applies to more than just animal activism. To me, it's really a mindset. So part of it is just an acknowledgement of that intention, an acknowledgement that times are changing. What was impactful last year or 10 years ago may not be impactful anymore. And so I think just an understanding of that as a base, an acknowledgement of that, and a desire to say, yes, I do want to be open-minded, and I do want to have a growth mindset. I think that is, is truly it, is cultivating 
a growth mindset, which at the core is curiosity and staying really curious about all different aspects of life and not ever believing that you have it figured out. Not ever believing I've solved this issue. I know the one thing that's going to make this have an impact because it is a moving target. And that takes being humble. That takes listening to other people, being a really good listener, getting information from different sources, not just from the place that's going to make you feel good about what your beliefs are today, but information that's going to be conflicting from what you currently believe, that's going to muddy the waters of what, uh, of what the solutions are that you see. Listening to people that don't agree with you on all of your current beliefs. You know, I think getting comfortable being uncomfortable is a state that that we we need to be in if we're going to continue to to grow throughout life not just in terms of our approach to social change but to life in general so i think you know that's just kind of the the sort of big picture that's what i have found helpful um and also you know constantly challenging ourselves to you know where are we just getting comfortable and where are we continuing to do the same things because we have self-identity involved in those. I think sometimes people are like, I am X, and they start to carry that identity and that label and then will you know, work to defend that identity and that label even when all of the indicators is that this is no longer the best way to operate. And that can cause you know, a lot of friction and, and certainly can... Um, prevent us from sort of living our best life having and having the biggest impact um, on the world that, that we seek. I love that MFA has always done a lot to build bridges on that note. I have such vivid memories of when I was first introduced to MFA because at the time, my exposure to animal advocacy was through PETA and through these other organizations that had very different approaches. But those were the templates that were out there. If you wanted to plug in, that was really the option. And I learned so much seeing the way that you really were trying to think of what is going to be the most effective. And to be effective, we need to reach people where they're at and we need to connect with people and take down those barriers. But some of the things that you would share along your path with MFA I had never thought about before, like how what we're wearing, how we present ourselves, like, do we have dreadlocks and are dressing like total hippies? Or are we going to put on a suit when we go to this meeting? Like that can have a total, totally different impact on how it's received by who you're talking to. And I remember you, I think you might have given some talks about this, but even like the design and aesthetic and everything that you put into MFA was so thought out about what is going to be most effective, what's going to do the most good and reduce the most suffering, which is so different than what you would just think it is. We all think like we know what that would be, but it's not. You have to test, you have to try it, you have to see what works. Do you have any advice on that front for people who maybe are trying to make an impact, things that they can do to help build bridges and connect in a way that they might be able to be heard? A little better. Yeah, absolutely. You know, again, I think so much of this goes back to to mindset, and you know, something that 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 I have found to be sort of challenging and a bit draining 
in the, the animal advocacy space is the amount of judgment that is tossed around. It can become a, almost a cannibalistic movement in just the putting each other down, this sort of perceived ethical, moral purity, you know, lack of forgiveness, lack of like seeing other people as, as imperfect humans. And, you know, I certainly see that in, in the, the, the movement as well with non-vegans or, you know, people that are involved in animal agriculture in any capacity is this sort of vilification of other people that they are evil and they are the enemy. And I understand that emotion. I've definitely gone through that. When, when you see so much cruelty and violence towards animals, it is absolutely understandable to feel angry and to feel rage and to be mad at the world and to be mad at other people. But I think we need to ascend past that and get to a place where we can see other people as doing the best that they can with what they know at that time. And to, to see people involved in animal agriculture and to see people that are eating animals as other human beings. And when we are able to do that and actually show up with compassion and dare I even say, love and try to get into a place where we're practicing unconditional love, we are able to see potential allies and partners in places that we couldn't before. And we could only see adversaries and the enemy. And we live in a highly polarized society. That's not news to anyone. And, you know, there's a fear bias. It is rooted in our brain. It is a survival mechanism. We give 10 times the attention to to negativity and to fear. And that is why it is utilized and weaponized by both political parties, by the media. And just to recognize that that's what's happening in our minds and to try to unwind ourselves from this sort of fear spiral and this polarization spiral, I think, allows for this sort of cross-pollination and this finding allies and advocates in unlikely places. So it's something that I would love to see more of, certainly in the animal movement, but quite frankly, in, in all movements and in society as general, in general. And I understand that is easier said than done. There are people who, who challenge me um, in this area. But I think it is um, part of the work that is on our plate, certainly as effective advocates, but also just as, you know, more enlightened humans. I love that. I'd love to talk a little bit more about the work MFA did, but also does, of course. But also one of the things that was a little bit different, at least at the time, was focusing specifically on farmed animals because a lot of the animal organizations out there took a broader approach. And obviously, if you care about farmed animals, you care about everything happening to all the animals. I'd love for you to share what made you decide to keep that focus. In the early days of the organization, we had a much broader focus 
would do protests and investigations at rodeos and at circuses. And we did protests outside of fur stores. And so we were trying to save all the animals everywhere. And what we realized rather quickly is that we have limited time and limited resources. And if we truly believe that all animals deserve protection, then we have to look at where the majority of the animals are that are are suffering and direct our attention there. And it is incredibly clear that farmed animals make up the vast, 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 vast majority of animals that are that are used, abused, exploited, confined by humans. I mean, we're talking nearly 300 every second in the United States alone that are being killed for food. So the numbers just dwarf all other areas where where um, animals are truly at the mercy of, of humans. So we simply followed that directive and made at the time sort of the difficult decision to cut some of the work that we were doing in areas that had sort of broader public support and had more sort of charismatic animals at the core. There's a lot more sort of public sympathy for elephants and chimpanzees and, you know, puppies than there there is for chickens or, or cows. But that is also an indication of where the real need is. So looking at the number of animals that are being being abused, looking at the severity of mistreatment and the duration of suffering, and then area that is being most neglected, it was just obvious that that um, farmed animals needed needed more attention. And you know since since then there have there has been more resources going into work to protect farmed animals, but it is still a drop in the ocean of what resources are really needed to address this issue. I mean, we're talking about 60 billion land animals globally that are used for food every year, and still just a handful of organizations and a few hundred million dollars every year dedicated towards helping them. It's really heavy stuff. But one other thing that I just adore about Mercy for Animals is that you slash the whole Mercy for Animals entity found lots of ways to make it fun and to make it about love and to make it positive. And one of some of my many, I guess many I, of my fondest memories from my, my days in college were the pride parades and volunteering with MFA and being present at that at these parades that were all about love and individuality in all different forms. And they were so happy and celebratory and were bringing this message that was heavy and hard, but that people could feel was like relatable to be an underdog or not cared about or not considered by society. And so I just remember how receptive people were to the message and then also how much it just brought people together with the camaraderie of just joy, happiness, love, and being kind. I love that that was a part of the advocacy and it just brought people together and connected them in a way that created friendships beyond the work of helping animals that made it 
a more sustainable, fulfilling, lifelong path for people like myself who started volunteering and then getting involved. And then it became my whole life's work. But it was also work that was alongside my best friends and people who I loved. And and we'd find ways to go to concerts and leaflet and just do things that were enjoyable, happy, and also helping. I share those really fond memories of so many different pride events. I, I think at, at our peak, we were doing about a dozen different city pride events, maybe even more each year. And I think the the LGBT plus community is particularly receptive and, and sympathetic to the message of, of animal cruelty and our, our food choices. Certainly, statistically, are, are more likely to embrace a, a plant-based diet. And I think a lot of that has to do with, as you said, this relating to the underdog or the underpig in this this case, and this um, this realization that that some individuals are treated very differently just because of who they are born as, not you know who they are as individuals. And in a broad sense, that's something that queer people have been experiencing for a very very long time. And you know, in a in a in a different but similar sense, in some ways, um, the the way in which farmed animals are mistreated. So there's a real sense of empathy and compassion for the mistreatment of quote unquote others, um, those that are those are in the minority and vulnerable to um, abuse of of power, which is certainly what's happening to farm animals. But yes, I think joy and love and fun is so vital because, as you said, this this can be very dark and heavy work. And well, you know, the the problem is is very heavy. The solutions are very vibrant and colorful and fun. And, and the solutions will be found in community and in healthy, delicious, flavorful food. And, you know, food is at the center of so many of our cultural and and social events. So, you know, we were always mindful at, at Mercy for Animals and something that I certainly carry with me now to the need to spend a lot of our time on the how and not just the why. And I think that is an area where a lot of advocates get stuck in talking about the the why and it can be really draining and it gets to a point where there's only so much doom and gloom that people can take. And it really is something where people just need to know how and how do they make changes in their lifestyle? How do they utilize their skills, talents, networks to affect this change? So I think it's really important at the end of the day that this movement, and certainly for Mercy for Animals, be a place where we're not just against cruelty, but we are for compassion. And there is a a higher vibration, a higher force that is driving us forward than just ending factory farming. That is a manifestation of ending the abuse and exploitation, but it's really a future of regeneration that we envision where where forests are able to come back because we're not tearing them down to create food for livestock, where animals are able to be themselves, whatever that means for them and their species, and not just preventing 
the worst abuse that they're experiencing now. Because I think ending factory farming is not the most inspiring big picture vision that we have. It is creating this this world, this future where the environment is clean, the water is clean, the air is clean, where animals are free to be themselves, where people are fed food that nourishes their body, their mind, their spirit in a way that reduces pandemic risks and allows people to live long and healthy lives. That is ultimately what we are moving towards instead of just things that we're moving away from. As someone who has been very active in living your passion, living your morals and ethics, and also sharing them with the people in your life, and also as someone who has mobilized hundreds of thousands, maybe more of people to to get active in their community, what advice do you have for anybody who's listening right now who feels really lonely like you did as a kid, but wants to do something and just feels like a little bit overwhelmed by it all? You know, first I would say we all experience that. It's totally normal. It's part of the journey. Keep going. If you can find support, latch on to that, foster that, you know, kindle that flame. But if you don't have that support now, know and trust that it will come. And I think that is where there's a certain amount of of bravery and courage and also faith that comes into following, being really in tune with your internal compass, your compassion and you know what your spirit is telling you to do. And if you are true to that and you follow that compass, over time, that support and that community will reveal itself. But it can be, can be a lonely a road for a while, but keep going. A lot of people give up right before something incredible is about to happen. And so, so much of it is about perseverance. I would also say, find what really brings you alive. Like there, there are so many different ways that you can have an impact. Not everyone you know, needs to be an investor. Not everyone needs to pass out leaflets. Not everyone needs to be an undercover investigator. Um, impact, if you love baking, could be baking on a, on a small scale and then on a larger scale. It could be, you know, going to school to work for a cultivated meat company. It could be, you know, being an artist and expressing change through so many different mediums. If it is, if you're a storyteller, it can be through film. Like there, there are so many different ways that if the types of, of change making that you're hearing about don't resonate with you, know that you can create your own path. And for some people that's earned to give, that is intentionally becoming very successfully successful financially and donating money to organizations that are driving this change or investing that capital in, in companies that are that are innovating the solutions that we need. Yeah, I guess that would be sort of high level uh, thoughts that I would have. And to add on to what Milo said, it might not be the very first thing that you try. For me, 
the very first things that I tried were the leafleting and the protesting. And that's what people in my college were doing. But what turned out to work well for me was starting a food blog. And all this time later, I'm still doing it and it still fuels my soul and keeps me very active. So just because you try something and don't like it doesn't mean that this is not for you, period. And I've learned that the hard way and trying many, many, many different things I didn't like before I before I found something that I really liked and that I thrive in and that I can see doing for the rest of my life. That's brilliant advice. Kind of reminds me of the advice for, for people that are moving towards a plant-based diet. It's like, try different recipes, try different products. You're not going to like all of them. It's certainly the same, the same with um, finding, finding your authentic and sustainable voice um, in this space. And again, yeah, just keep going and keep trying. Um, it'll, it'll find you. Milo, thank you so much for your time. And where can people find you? Where can they buy your book, Mercy for Animals? And, um, and if they want to connect, where is the best place to do that? Well, for information on Mercy for Animals, people can go to mercyforanimals.org. People can find me on, on social media personally um, at Milo Runkle. Uh, mostly on Instagram is, is where I'm active. Yeah, my, my book, Mercy for Animals, can be found on Amazon and most places that, that books are sold. We'll also Thanks. link that in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. What a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you, Milo. Very much. Also, a friendly reminder to check out our sponsors of this episode, Caraway and Organifi. You can find Caraway's beautiful cookware at carawayhome.com slash plantpoweredkitchen and enjoy 10% off your purchase there right now. And you can find Organifi at organifi.com slash plantpower and use the code plantpower for 20% off. That was so special having Milo on. It's so cool being in this place now with you, Tony, where we get to bring onto the show our personal heroes, people who shaped us, who played roles in our past that got us to, to doing this work today and to be able to explore what moved them and just, yeah, hear their words of wisdom and share it with even more people. So... I personally, I know this topic was very heavy, but I feel so inspired. I love the words that Milo shared about painting a picture of what the world could look like. Happy, healthy, vibrant, forests growing world. So I love that we're leaving the episode with that. And I hope many of you listening feel inspired to do something good, do an act of kindness or integrate some form of advocacy into your days, your weeks, your years, anything helps. So thank you. I also really appreciated his inclusivity. I think that's something that really resonates with me and Michelle personally, and with what we try to bring out on this podcast, that there's a place for everyone here. And that if we believe in each other, that we can all do better and be better, then it makes it all much more possible. So thank you for listening all the way to the very end. And thank you for always being part of the Michelle and Tony love fest here on the Plant Powered People podcast. We really appreciate 
all the support that you show us. And of course, if you have something to say, we'd love to read it on our review section on Apple podcast. And if you feel so inclined to help support the podcast, you can do so on patreon.com slash plant powered people. Thank you so much again, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.